Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I'm the founder and CEO of Mara Poling. Happy to be with you this week as we continue our discussion on the basics of multifamily real estate investing. Last week, we spent time on finance. This week, multifamily financial analysis. So now that we've covered the basics of the financials, how do we analyze them? What we're going to do is we're going to walk through the metrics that you can, and we would suggest you should be using to analyze the performance of your multifamily investment. If you have any questions, please feel free to shoot me an email, pat at marapoling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. Don't forget to swing by the Learning Center at marapoling.com for lots of other great content. We have some uh, webinars there that you can register for. Our most recent webinar, which was scheduled for last week on uh, a 1031 case study analysis, unfortunately got delayed. So there's still time to register for that session. And again, you can do that at the Learning Center at marapoling.com. All right, so let's, let's get into it. We talked last week about financials. We walked through basically where a dollar of NOI comes from and how that then translates into the value of the asset and cash flow. So now that we have financials and we understand basically how they're put together, what do they mean? What should I be looking for? What are the things that we look for that Mara Poling looks for when we're looking at an asset, thinking about purchasing it, when we're building a budget, when we're building an underwrite, and that's where all this leads us is ultimately to the underwrite. So what is it that we're looking at? What is it? What are the things that uh, we care the most about and that are the metrics we think everyone should be taking a peek at? So we're just gonna start at the top and work our way down a set of financials. So last week, I, I talked at some length about this item called loss to lease. Essentially, the difference between what the aggregate market rent is based on what I, as the owner of the asset, guess or believe it should be, and the actual rents that I'm getting for the units. So if I'm renting units on average for $800, and I think the market is $1,000, then there's a $200 difference. And if I have um, 1,000, pardon me, 100 units, that's $20,000 that's available to me. So that loss to lease number can be meaningful or meaningless. If the market number, if that $1,000 is based on my gut or a newspaper article I read or what the Ouija board told me over the weekend, you know, some non-data-based item, then the lost lease number is kind of useless. If that market number is based on data, if we have done a study of the marketplace, if we have looked uh, possibly at other assets we own in that same market, uh, other assets that maybe we don't own, but that are managed by our third-party management partner. Uh, and 
from that, we have determined that $1,000 is what we ought to be getting for these units. And that's what our marketing plan is built for. That's the strategy we're employing. Then it makes a lot of sense for that number to be 1000 And now that $20,000 loss to lease number, it really does mean something. That number represents a couple of things. One, obviously it represents a raw dollar that's available to us if we can make improvements such that we would get those rents. Uh, and those improvements could be simply improving how we operate the property. It could be improving how we market the property. It could be actually making some investments to improve the property such that we could get those, uh, those kinds of rents. Now, when we do that, almost all of that money falls all the way to the bottom line to NOI. Not all of it, though. Uh, we use a third-party hybrid management uh, strategy. So we have operations folks that manage assets as well as we use a third-party firm that provides resources and back office support and management uh, support. Uh, so some of that revenue we generate peels off a few percentage points to go off to the management firm. There are likely some expenses that we might incur getting there. I mentioned advertising and some other things. So if you can get that 20,000, it might be five, 10, 15% of that that you would see in increased operating expenses. So on 20 grand, maybe there's an extra 3,000 in operating expenses, but that's $17,000 every month that falls to the bottom line. And that's $17,000 on an annualized basis, about $200,000 adds to the value of the asset. That increase in NOI, $200,000, if you're in a four cap, pardon me, a five cap market, so where you're looking at $20 for every dollar in revenue, that $200,000 added $4 million in value to the property. Pretty exciting from that standpoint. So that loss to lease number can be a valuable number to look at, but only if the market rent number is actually grounded in reality. So that's the first thing we would offer up. Next, and uh, if you've been listening to us for the last few months, you're probably sick of us having this conversation, but it's really a wonderful a uh, place to look at the financials and get some real understanding of not just the health of the asset, but what the market is telling us, and that is vacancy. So total vacancy, economic vacancy, effective vacancy, lots of different terms for it, but the whole of vacancy, which includes empty units, so physical vacancy, concessions, so discounts we're giving people to incent people to either move in or to stay if they're already here, and bad debt, units that are physically occupied but not generating any rent because the tenant is not paying. All of that together is total vacancy. And we want to look at that four different ways. So we want to look at physical vacancy. And if we're looking at a set of financials that are actuals, we're looking at it to see, okay, what is the percentage of physical vacancy? We might have a rent roll that says, at any given point in time, out of our 100 units, there's only one unit available 
to rent? Well, then we should be 99% physical. I can pretty much guarantee you the financials are going to say you're 97% or something like that. And the reason for that is when there's movement in and out of the property, it may show up as being available to rent for just a few days. Someone gives notice. They haven't moved out yet. Somebody else comes in and says, I'm interested in a, in a unit. And they go, great, we've got one becoming available at the end of the month. I'm like, fantastic. Can I move in on the seventh? The person moved out on the, moves out on the third. This new person moves in on the seventh. But we have four days of vacancy. And you'll have that kind of number that's in there, as well as the units that are actually vacant. Someone has moved out. The unit is not rented. And it's on the market, available for someone. So that physical number is an important number to understand. We're going to come back to it in a minute in terms of how the market speaks to us. But that's really a primary uh, communications tool, if you will. The next is going to be concessions, right? So these are discounts, discounts to rent. That's what's going to show up in these line items. So if we're discounting rent, hey, move in, sign a one-year lease, and we'll give you half off your first month, that kind of a concession, it's going to show up here. Some level of concessions is understandable, appropriate, and forecasted. We generally would like to see concessions at or below 1%. So if I have 100 units at $800 a month, so $80,000 in potential rent that could come in, I'd like to see $800 or less in concessions in any given month. When you take concessions and you add that to physical vacancy, that really gives you an idea of what the market is telling you about the desirability of your product. So if we have a physical vacancy number, right? So we've gone through and tallied up what the physical vacancy was on the financials, financials, and we add to that the concessions. And what we end up with is a number that's 97% or even 98%. That's the market telling us you're basically full and you've got room to do something relative to your rents. If that number is 90%, 89%, 88%, that's telling me that my product, the units we're offering, are not as desirable as others in the marketplace. Maybe I change my rents. That might be the issue. Maybe it's something else about what I'm doing. But it certainly tells me that the market is not satisfied with the value proposition that we're offering. Generally, the way that's addressed is either some additional concessions, right, which starts to move that number, or some uh, changes in rents. And as you change the rents, you begin to see that occupancy number grow. We would love to see something in the 93 to 97% range. 95 is a really nice sweet spot. Maybe something just even a hair lower than that. Uh, we want to have some turnover. We want to have some vacant units. It's healthy for the property, healthy for us in terms of 
uh, staying abreast of what's going on in the market, giving us a chance to turn units, to make improvements to units. And at the same time, we like the stability of having a property that's 90, better than 90% occupied. Now, bad debt is also part of the total vacancy equation. It is a number that's going to happen. Life happens to folks, and we understand that. And if there's something we can do to help facilitate uh, someone's living condition, we're absolutely going to do those kinds of things. And we're also not in a position to simply have tenants stay in their units and not ever pay rent, right? So uh, we're going to help folks. And if we can help them, it might be that they end up deciding to move out. Maybe we'll work with them on a way that they could do that. Uh, it might be that they're able to find some support somewhere, either within the community. Maybe there's some government aid. Uh, there's been some of that we saw during the pandemic uh, that would help them get current on their rent and be able to stay there. But ultimately, we will have some bad debt. It's just the nature of the beast. Again, Historically, we would like to see that number around 1%. So again, on our roughly $80,000 I'm using as an example, maybe $800 a month. Since the pandemic, we're probably talking a number closer to maybe 3%. So $2,400, something around that. Uh, we are right now, and this is going on across the industry, the uh, restrictions uh, for the most part on evictions have been lifted and more importantly the courts are finally uh, up to speed in terms of processing and so we're seeing more activity uh, there not just on our portfolio but other portfolios in the industry and as that happens uh, some of that debt that's been sitting on the books some of those receivables are now coming off in the form of uh, bad debt so we're seeing some movement uh, there. When you put those together, right? So if we're uh, our physical occupancy, when you factor in concessions, maybe we're at 95%. If we had 3% bad debt, well, we're at 92% in terms of our uh, total effective occupancy, uh, meaning our total vacancy is 8%. That's actually a pretty healthy number. We generally are gonna underwrite something in the low 90s for most of our assets and then look to perform better than that as an opportunity for us to have favorable uh, variances. Understanding these three components is really critical to understanding the health of an asset and developing strategy for how we're gonna be managing it going forward. Uh, that's one of the very first things I look at when I sit with the team and go through the monthly asset financials is a good conversation about where we are in vacancy. And rent rolls are wonderful. They tell an interesting story that's certainly valuable. These numbers tell uh, the whole story. And so there's a lot of value from that standpoint. Now, I mentioned when I said concessions that those were rent concessions. There's another kind of concession out there, and it has to do with the other income side of the fence. So when a tenant applies uh, for uh, a tenancy uh, for a lease, they're gonna fill out an application. There's an application fee, there might be a credit uh, fee that they have to pay. When they move in, there could be some initial administrative fees that they pay, uh, security deposit, of course. There might be a, a pet fee, a non-refundable pet fee. All of those items I just described show up in other income. Those can be 
uh, managed as well for concessions. So they could be waived or reduced and it would show up in a reduction in other income. But they're not gonna show up as part of this vacancy calculation I just described. So that doesn't mean that anybody's playing games with the books, putting it one place or the other. It's simply something to be aware of when you're looking at a set of financials that there could be other concession tools used that could be effective and that would not ultimately affect the long-term uh, revenue uh, situation. So that's another place to, uh, to look. Other income is also where we're gonna see uh, many of the amenity items, right? So as we add things like assigned parking or covered parking or package lockers or whatever it might happen to be, we could see some income items showing up there. So, uh, so that's the story on the revenue side, right? Those are the pieces we want to be looking at there. We then are going to turn our attention towards operating expenses. Now, there is a lot of um, rules of thumb, I guess is how I would describe it in the industry around what the operating expense line items should be. You should have a team of this size for this many units. You know, for 100 units, you need this many people, for 150, this many, for 200, and so on. And they should cost X. Uh, you should be spending this much per door on repairs and maintenance or on turnover. Uh, your insurance should cost this much per door. We look at that data in our own portfolio, right? We pull that data so that we have some understanding of it. And that's the starting point for every set of financials we put together for every underwrite. Ultimately though, those items are built based on what that particular property needs. Some properties uh, have a uh, need for more staff. Uh, maybe we're doing some capital improvement work and we're gonna do a certain amount of it with our own labor. Uh, some are more efficient from a staff standpoint. Some properties are going to have uh, configurations and amenities such that insurance might be higher. Others might be in a, a situation in which we can have a more efficient uh, insurance plan and therefore we'll see a lower rate. So those numbers are starting points. Ultimately, we're going to build a forecast based on what we think the actual numbers are going to be. And then that's really the name of the game when it comes to operating expenses, looking at what are those actual numbers and how are they growing? The game with OPEX is not reduction. It's great if you can pull that off. And there are occasions where we've been able to reduce a particular line item. The real money to be made on the operating expense side of the equation is to manage the growth of operating expenses. Our operating expenses growing 3%, 5%, 8%, 10% a year. That's where the opportunity exists, is to ideally be in a position where operating expenses are growing more slowly than revenue is. If there's a gap to start with, which is what NOI is, we can grow NOI by having a steady 4% increase in revenue well, we only have a 2% increase in operating expenses. That gap, which while the percentage holds the same, the dollars increase as you go further and further out. That gap is what drives the NOI increase. 
we would like to see something like a 50-50 split between operating expenses and NOI. So if you're looking at revenue, right? So our $80,000 number I just mentioned, and then you put some operating, uh, pardon me, some other income and other items on it. And I, I know we used the number last week for this week's purposes, let's just say that's $100,000. Then we'd like to see operating expenses around 50 grand and NOI at about 50 grand. When we first acquire a property, it wouldn't be out of the norm for it to maybe have operating expenses that are 55%, maybe even 60% of what the revenue number is. So $60,000 and NOI only at 40. And then we would grow that. We certainly wanna to get to a position where NOI is greater than 50% of the revenue number that's coming in. Now, the way to do that, as I just described, is not reducing operating expenses. Uh, you can reduce expenses. The way to do that oftentimes is counterproductive, uh, cutting staff, cutting expenses on landscaping, cutting uh, repairs and maintenance dollars. That just uh, compounds the challenge of trying to grow revenue. We want to grow operating expenses in a very modest manner because we're being smart about it, but we want to grow revenue. And as we grow revenue, that's how we're going to shift that percentage. So it's not that operating expenses go from being $55,000 to $50,000. It's that the revenue goes from being $100,000 to $105,000, $110,000, $115,000, $120,000, while we maintain a reasonable level of operating expense expenditure. That brings up a question that I think really sums up the way we want to think about uh, financials and how we analyze them, and I think positions us for the conversation we're going to start having next week on underwriting. And that is, if we had the opportunity to grow NOI by a dollar, would we care if that was a dollar of revenue or if it was a dollar of operating expense savings or some combination thereof? And the clear answer absolutely is, I want that dollar to be revenue, 100% of it. And the reason for that is this, is those revenue items I mentioned, right? So the loss to lease and the ability to capture that, the vacancy numbers, which feed it back into rent growth, the other income, all of that gets us to a net revenue number. That number is the second most important number out there besides NOI. NOI is what tells you the story of the health of the property. When I go to sell the asset, well, a buyer, and we're buyers, this is the way we look at it, a buyer will look at NOI, but the reality is I know that I'm going to put my own operating plan in place and my operating expenses will be different. There'll be some that'll be the same, the utilities as an example, but I'm gonna put my own staff in place. I'm gonna have my own management uh, arrangement. I may uh, have a different number for repairs and maintenance and so on because I'm gonna do more or less or do it differently than the current owner. But the revenue number, that revenue number is really critical because we're starting with that as the foundation and then we're gonna grow it from there. So if I can grow NOI by a dollar and I do it by reducing operating expenses, a buyer's going to kind of toss that out. 
and say, okay, great, your NOI went up, but I don't care about your operating expenses very much because I'm going to use my own. By the way, the lender's going to look at it the exact same way. The lender knows how much everyone should be spending in their mind for the various items in operating expenses. They're going to build that in themselves. So that dollar, the value of it kind of disappears. But if I can add a dollar to revenue, and that becomes the dollar of NOI growth, then that becomes value in terms of what a buyer is going to be looking to purchase. A lender is going to look at that and say, great, that's a dollar of revenue that we can use to build a debt cover ratio around to give you more uh, ability, uh, more borrowing power. There is absolutely more value in growing revenue than there is in reducing expenses. You've got to do both. It's th That's kind of obvious. But as I said, if we were going to put together an effort to move NOI, we might have 10 items on our list. Three of them might be around the management of operating expenses. Seven of them are going to be around, let's move that revenue number. Let's work on how we can optimize our rents. Let's work on how we can manage concessions or bad debt. Uh, let's work on how we can generate some other income. Those are all the items we'd be looking at that are going to help us move the needle. So next week, we're going to start the conversation on underwriting, which is how we take this understanding of financials that we went through last week, the metrics that I just talked about, and we start to put together the model of how we think an asset will perform such that when we're in the acquisition phase, we can put the inputs into this underwrite, and then we can begin to see, one, how it might perform if everything happened the way we just said. And this is probably the more critical piece, we can begin to stress test it. We can say, all right, we've made what we think is a reasonable input, a reasonable ass assessment of what rent growth is gonna look like. What if we're wrong? What if rents didn't grow that much? What if they grew more slowly? What if occupancy didn't hit the number we said? What if, what if, what if? And that gives us a sense of how healthy and strong this asset could be, how resilient it could be while we move throughout the entirety of the economic cycle. And because we're security investors, first and foremost, we want good, secure, stable investments. That's the way we want to think about it. So that conversation starts next week. If you have any questions about this week's topic, shoot me an email, pat at marapoling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. And please join me next week for another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling.